Hey there, welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about earning a living independently doing something you really care about. Our guest today is James Clear. James is the New York Times bestselling author of Atomic Habits, which has sold over 1 million copies. James also writes weekly about habits, decisions, human performance, and more over at jamesclear.com, where over a half million people subscribe to his weekly email newsletter. James, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, Corbett. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on again. We had you on about a year ago as the book was coming out, Atomic Habits. And since then, as I mentioned in the opener, you've sold over a million copies of the book. That's just incredible. You've been on the bestseller list for how many weeks now? Yeah, thanks. It's been it's been really crazy. Uh, <clears throat> very happy with how it's gone. Um Depends on which bestseller list we're looking at. The uh, for the New York Times business list, it's been on for twelve months straight now, which is crazy. Um, for the advice and how to list, I think it's been on there eight or nine times now. Uh, that one's weekly, not monthly. Um, so some of the lists have different timelines, but we've been very fortunate for sure. It's been it's been a wild ride. Did you have any um, goals or estimates or anything of how many you wanted to sell when you when you set out? Um, well, I didn't have estimates of how it went. I did have hopes for what we would be able to do. I sometimes, you know, because the book has done so well, people asked, Oh, you know, was this expected? Like, what what did you think? And I, I kind of have like two answers. On the one hand, I don't think any reasonable author could expect it to do what it has done. Uh, I think that's just kind of been a little bit of an outlier and uh, a lot of luck and timing and uh, other things kind of coming together. Um, but at the same time, that was kind of the hope. Like we put a lot of work into um, designing the marketing and the launch plan. Uh, and then the most important thing, you know, it took me, depending on how you want to measure it, it's somewhere between three to five years to write the book. And so um, my hope when I was working on it was that it would be the most comprehensive and practical book that's been written on how habits work and how to change them. And it's up to the readers to decide whether or not that mark has been hit. But I feel like uh, approaching it in that way put us in a good position to have a book that could spread and sell and kind of gain some steam by word of mouth. So um, I don't think I expected it to do what it did, but I hoped that we would be able to produce something that was worthy of doing what it has done. Yeah, I know. A lot of times a book uh, is subject to the whims of the public and and where people's interests are and what your competition might be. And then also the title seems to have such an impact sometimes on how sure. well the book does. I think if you, you know, the, the thing is, it's kind of like that. Uh, I think there's that famous uh, quote from Anna Karenina where it's like, um, every family, every happy family is the same. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And I think book launches are kind of like that in the sense that um, every successful book launch is the same. Every unsuccessful one is unsuccessful for a different reason. And basically <laughs> the point is like, there are a million places where you could like drop the ball. And so you kind of need all of those factors to come together. Title, concept, uh, great execution, good storytelling, practical and useful, the right timing, uh, maybe some other external factors that you don't have much control over, a well-planned launch, good uh, media coverage. Like there's just so many pieces of the puzzle which kind of makes it a fun, a really fun thing to work on, fun project to work on because it's so challenging. Um, but, 
Yeah, I think the the title certainly helps play a role. The concept, the, that's probably the biggest choice any author makes is what is the, your book going to be about? Uh, you know, and so I didn't know what the title would be or what the um, chapters would look like or what the framework was going to be for the book. But I did know it was going to be a book about habits. And just that choice alone was helpful because that's kind of a timeless and universal topic. And so I'm like playing with concepts for a second book right now. And it's hard to find something that is also timeless and universal uh, that kind of is evergreen like that. So I'm, um, yeah, there, there are just a lot of, of elements or pieces of the puzzle that factor into it. The, um, I should mention that uh, you were on, as I said, about a year ago in episode 288, and people can go to fizzleshow.co slash 288 um, to learn all about what's in the book. You can also go to jamesclear.com and uh, download the first chapter for free, I believe, of the yep. book as well. Um, I'd love to know, uh, when when did you get interested in habits, and how did you start to see them impact your life? Because I know that um, your philosophy is that habits sort of underpin everything that you want to achieve in life and that they're sort of the secret, the key to making progress towards anything. When did they become important to you? And then when did you start to study them in earnest? And what did that look like? Yeah, I, so you're right. I do think they play a really significant role. You know, your habits are kind of like the results that you have in life are often a lagging measure of your habits, right? So like your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Your uh, physical fitness is a lagging measure of your eating and training habits. Your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Even like the clutter in your office or your bedroom is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. So you can apply that idea that your results are a lagging measure of your habits to almost any major area of life. Um, and for that reason, they're just so widely applicable and so uh, widely impacting. And so understanding what a habit is and how it works seems like a really important thing to, you know, for making your way in the world and, and getting the results that you want. In my case, I sort of learned about that through, I guess, like two different avenues. So the, the first, I kind of learned it through practice, even though I didn't really have a language for it um, first. So I played a variety of sports growing up in high school. I tell the, the story in detail in the, the introduction of the book. I suffered the serious injury where I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. And the fallout from that was significant. I couldn't drive a car for the next nine months. I had multiple seizures. I couldn't breathe on my own for uh, periods of that day. I was placed into this medically induced coma. And that was when I was started the process of recovering from that the next day and going to physical therapy in the weeks that followed. It was the first period in my life when I had to start small. Like I couldn't flip a switch and just, you know, get right back to where I was before. And so that was the period where I kind of first learned the significance of making small improvements. My first physical therapy session, I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line. And then, you know, a variety of seemingly insignificant habits, I started to form those and they gave me a sense of control over my life again. They weren't big things. It was like, going to bed at the same hour each night, preparing for class for an hour every day. Um, this was the first time in my life after physical therapy that I started going to the gym consistently, first once or twice a week and then three or four times. So the, the, the story in the book gives the whole detail, but basically the point of this is I was able to rebound from the injury and end up having a successful college baseball career, mostly because of these small habits and by making these small improvements and bouncing back from that challenge. So I had that experience on the personal side. 
And then I had like a more professional side of things. Um, I studied science in undergrad, mostly hard sciences like biology, chemistry, physics, and um, then went to grad school. And after I got done, uh, I started my own uh, started my own business online. And this was around the time that you and I first met, Corbett. And uh, for the first two years, I kind of just floundered around and like didn't really get great results. It just I was trying different websites and different email lists and ideas and concepts and nothing was really sticking. And I realized that one of the problems was that I didn't know how to market things. I didn't know how to, why would a customer buy a product? Why would somebody sign up for an email list? And so I started studying consumer psychology to learn more about that. Um, and that naturally led me to and revealed and uncovered some ideas around behavioral psychology and habit formation. And as I got deeper into that, the scientific part of my brain started to get interested in it. It was like, oh, the biology and neuroscience of habits, what regions of the brain are involved? How are these formed? And I naturally started connecting it with that personal experience that I had earlier, where it was like, oh, I use some of these ideas on the baseball field, or this could help me with my training in the gym or with sticking with my writing habit. So it was sort of a blend of those two. And I would describe that now as kind of where I'm at as far as uh, my career, which is that I try to take ideas that are scientifically grounded and distill them into something that we can use in, in practical life. You know, how do we take these scientific concepts and use them at life and work and daily practice and so on? So I'm mostly interested in like the application of knowledge. And uh, that's true for my articles and, and certainly true with Atomic Habits and kind of how the concepts in the book are laid out. What were some of the bedrock habits that you relied on during the first several years of jamesclear.com? You started that site when in 2013? November 2012. November 2012? Uh, November 12th, 2012 was the first day that I posted an article there. So it was really 2013 was really the first full year. Um, and the core habit for sure that led to the growth of the site and the growth of my audience and so on and ultimately culminated in getting the book deal and writing Atomic Habits was for the first three years, I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday. And so it was really that article, that weekly writing habit that provided the um, raw material to work with for everything else that happened in the business. So by writing twice a week and trying my best each time, I knew that I would have eight or nine articles at the end of the month. And if I have eight or nine and I tried my best each time, I knew two or three of them would be decent. I didn't know which ones they would be, but two or three would work out. And then once you have two or three decent articles each month, every marketing strategy is easier. You can optimize them for SEO. You can share them on social media and they're going to get more uh, engagement there. I, in my case at this time, I started reaching out to uh, larger platforms and asking if they would republish or syndicate the work, which they're more likely to do if it's a good article and has performed well already. So all of those aspects were easier once I had the, the foundation of articles. And um, ultimately, doing that for two or three years led to, I think I had a couple hundred thousand, two, maybe 200,000 email subscribers when we signed the book deal, to 225, somewhere around there. Um, and uh, so it was really that that led to all of that because writing the articles also was how book agents found me and publishers found me. And there's just a, like a lot of good things that happen once you start to put that much work out into the world. And of course, you had uh, so much of the foundation for the book by the end of that period as well. I'm sure that a lot of the ideas and, and diagrams and so on from the book came directly from your writing. 
Yeah, there was definitely, uh, it, it's for sure helped, definitely. Uh, it didn't <laughs> didn't help as much as I was hoping it would. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought, okay, I've got 40 or 50 ideas here about how to build habits that are kind of proven and have performed well already. And now I just need to like get them in the right order and, and put those together in the book. So I thought I had maybe 50% of the work done. Um, looking back on it now, it was probably more like 10% of the work. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that was in the book got heavily reworked or new ideas needed to be added. I started to realize I had all these gaps in my thinking. Um, and then another real challenge, which I had not thought of is when you have a blog, it's like a spider web. You can have one article and then it can link to three or four other ones. Like they, they can all just connect in this big web. But when you write a book, it has to progress more linearly, like a number line. It's like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. And so it's like you have to take each of those little nodes in the spider web and like lay them out in a line. And that sounds simple, but it took me like a year to get the order and the outline of the book right. It was very difficult to have all those ideas and figure out what is the framework that holds this all together? How is this supposed to flow clearly from one point to the next? What's the best place for the reader to start? How can we, this is another thing I thought about a lot. How can we put the best ideas in the front of the book so that there are people you lead with your best stuff? Um, so anyway, that, that was more challenging than I imagined it would be. But you're certainly right. That writing up front helped a lot. And uh, I don't think I would have got the book deal without having the blog. Like they would never would have let me in the room if I didn't have an email list. Absolutely. And, and I think that's, that's just a great lesson for people. So many people want to be writers and to have a published book. And uh, they just go hat in hand to publishers with an idea without having anything to show necessarily. Um, you can, of course, judge a work on its own and an idea on its own. But until you've seen that someone is capable of actually growing an audience, holding an audience's attention, publishing consistently, there's just so much risk for a publisher versus going with someone like you. And of course, um, you know, I, I'm sure that there were more benefits to you having a big audience leading into a book versus somebody starting out from scratch, but it just makes so much sense. If you want to be a writer, then go write weekly mm -hmm. and anybody can do that online. The, the difference being though, I, I, you know, um, I'm curious about how you view habits and consistency versus quality and impact mm -hmm. because any, you know, just because someone publishes twice a week for three years doesn't mean they're going to have an email list of a couple hundred thousand people at the end for of that. Sure. In fact, I'm guessing there are thousands and thousands of people who maybe they've shown up every week on a blog or a podcast or YouTube and don't have much to show for it at the end of that at all. How did you think about that? And, and, and what's your advice for people on top of habits? Like what else do you need to layer on to ensure your success? Yeah, that's a great question. And something I think I've had to learn and evolve on a little bit over time. The first thing is, though, I don't want to dismiss the importance of showing up. Um, because writing two articles a week for three years is something that honestly, like that, that hurdle alone will probably get you past 90% of people that want to do it. Like there's just not most people don't do that is, is um, I think the, the short answer. So that is a really big part of it. Um, and in fact, it's such a big part that I think early on, the way that I think about that balance between habits and consistency and quality is that uh, Ira Glass, host of This American Life, has that famous quote where he's like, you know, early on in any creative endeavor, your taste is great. You know what good work looks like, but your skills aren't there yet. And so it's really easy to feel like an imposter or to get depressed or upset about that because 
you're making something and you know it's not that good because you know what good work looks like. But the crucial aspect for, I think, any creative project early on, any creative skill set, you really do need to show up consistently for some period of time so that you not only can you know start to do work that matches your taste, but also that in writing, we would call it like developing your voice. Uh, if you're a photographer, you would say you need to like kind of develop your eye. Um, but whatever it is, there's some element of style, some element of like coming into your own as an artist that needs to happen. And the only way to do that is to put in your reps. If you don't put the reps in, you can't like fast forward that process and learn what you, what your unique style or take is going to be. So, uh, once you accept that, then it's kind of becomes like, well, the only way to get through that is to start putting my reps in. Um, I kind of feel that way about other areas of life too, like in the gym, for example, you could view, let's say you want to squat 300 pounds. Well, you could also, you could imagine that not as like a single event, but as like, well, the only way to squat 300 pounds is if I've done 10,000 reps before that. And so you're like, well, the, the only thing to do then is to start putting my reps in. Um, so I think writing or creative endeavors are a lot like that. So for that reason, early on, the challenge that I gave to myself or the approach that I started to take was I'm going to limit myself, but the thing that's not going to change is going to be the schedule. So um, I might limit myself on scope. I might limit myself. Maybe I don't really want to limit on quality, but maybe I will. But basically the idea is something has to get out on Mondays and Thursdays. It doesn't matter how good or how bad it is. It doesn't matter how long or how short it is. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. If all I can do is write one good paragraph, that's what's getting published. Um, and I, I got so committed to that that there's actually at one point early on, maybe a, a year in or so, I was traveling and I got sick. I had food poisoning, but I didn't want to miss. And so I just wrote a blog that said like, I have food poisoning. The blog's coming like next week or whatever. And, but it was just important for me to press publish to get something out on that Thursday, you know, just to make sure that the streak was not broken. Did, so, just curious, did you, did you end up missing any Monday or Thursday during the first several years? I did. I did not miss, I think at least for the first two years and maybe all the way through for the third year. The third year was really hard on me. I had started working on the book and I was also writing the articles at the same time. And it was during that year that I realized like, this is not going to be sustainable. I had a lot of articles that I was publishing at 1am on, you know, a Monday or a Thursday or something, or it just, it was starting to get the, the load was starting to get too hard. Um, but I think it's also worth mentioning here that I, for the first year, I didn't focus on making any money from the site. Um, I was making money with like freelance projects and other things that I had done. I, I put probably about 15 to 20 hours into each article and I was writing two a week. So my, my job was literally just to write two great articles. Um, so obviously, you know, whether that's going to work for you or not depends on your circumstance and what other things you have going on and what kind of business you're trying to build. Um, but my point is just that the consistency was really important, but the quality was also very important to me. And that's why I spent 15 to 20 hours on each article. Um, so I you, think if something needs to flex early on, it's probably quality and you need to show up. But then at some point you cross this threshold where it's really got to be great. The difference between, I was just talking to, uh, Tim Urban about this, who is a blogger at Wait But Why. We were talking about this last week. 
the difference between A minus work and A plus work is really significant, um, especially in the right format. Uh, for example, a book. The difference between writing a B plus book and an A plus book are just it's massive. It's like a it's um exponential returns. Yeah. And so you really, I think, for certain projects, you really need to focus on getting it right and taking a little bit extra time to do that uh, is val is really valuable. I think it makes more sense to do that after you've gone through that period where you've developed your taste and developed your voice and been consistent. Because if you try to do that from the very start, you just feel like an imposter so much that it never feels perfect. But if you've produced a lot, then you know what it takes to make something good. And taking a little bit extra time to get that last 10% is probably worth it. I was reading something uh, earlier that you had written about habits and and why they're so important. And I, I think it boiled down to that uh, there's so much friction in showing up if you're just doing it sporadically. There's a million reasons why you can talk yourself out of something. And by implementing habits, by having a schedule and showing up, then it just becomes automatic and and you can throw out basically all of that rumination that you might be doing to talk yourself out of it. Is that... Mm. Is that how you would describe the the kind of magic that happens when you have a schedule or you're sticking to a habit? Well, it's sort of like habits replace discipline. You know, like early on, your people would say things like, "Yo, if I just had, if I, if you really wanted it, then you would do it. Or if I just had more willpower, or discipline, or grit, then maybe I'd stick with it." But uh, I think about like my workout habit, for example. So that's like a really crucial thing for me. Um, I usually go at like 5 p.m. each night. Go four or five nights a week. And so if it's Monday at five, like I, I'm going to the gym. That's just what happens then. It's not even really a decision. It doesn't really require discipline or willpower at this point. That's just like what I do on Mondays at five. And so the habit now has like replaced the need for discipline. And I think before something is a habit, you're going through life and you're kind of looking for the right time to do it. It's sort of like, oh, I hope I feel motivated to write today or Oh man, maybe I'll be, you know, excited to go to the gym today or it's like I need the discipline to like do this because you don't have a clear time and space where that habit lives. Uh and so you're always trying to find or muster up enough willpower to to do it. Um and so habit can kind of replace that. I think that's one it's one nice part about once a habit is built, you really aren't motivating yourself as much anymore. And you hear um you hear people use phrases like that when they have gone through some kind of transformation. They'll say something like, yeah, I like never used to work out, but now I can't imagine not going to the gym. That's just part of who I am. Or um, I, in the beginning, I had to like force myself to sit down and meditate, but now like I'm a meditator. And once you start assigning those identities to yourself, I'm a meditator, I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, I'm a runner, I'm a writer, that's when you've kind of signaled this shift in uh, behavior and identity. You're really not even pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person you already see yourself to be. Are you uh, the kind of person who uses an app or have any sort of tricks or anything that you use to make a habit stick? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I do have a trick, which I want to come back to in a second. But uh, with regards to tracking and measurement, I had this realization recently and I, you know, I wrote a whole chapter about measurement and habit tracking or whatever in the book, but I just, you know, recently realized this after the book has come out pretty much every area in my life where I've made sustained progress 
I have some kind of measurement or tracking. I got some spreadsheet or tracking or analytics or something. Um, you know, whether it's the weight that I'm lifting in the gym, I record all my workouts in a notebook. I use like a physical notebook or the number of copies we'd sold for the book. I have a spreadsheet tracking that the amount of subscribers that we have on the email list, like all of these things have some form of measurement that I use to track. And so I think there is something about measurement that helps a habit be sustained over the long run because at some point it becomes, and this can be, I should mention, this can be a downside too of measurement, which is it starts to become about the number and not about the real reason you were doing it. You know, like for, I think about me as a student, it became all about getting an A and not about actually learning anything. I actually didn't care if I had learned something as long as I got a good grade. Right. Um, so uh, there, is a, there is a little bit of a pitfall there. Um, but the plus side, the positive side of it, is that if you're still getting the results that you want and things are moving forward, it kind of becomes fun to track. It becomes, because each tracking, each instance of updating the spreadsheet or writing down the workout is a signal of progress. Um, so in my dad's case, my dad likes to swim and he has this little pocket calendar and each day that he goes to the, uh, to the pool and comes back and swims, he puts a little X on that day. And then at the end of the month, he counts up how many X's he has and compares that to the previous month. And what's nice about tracking in that sense, when it comes to habits is that many good habits, especially have this kind of valley of death in the beginning where you're showing up, but you can't see the results that you're hoping for. It's like, oh, I've been running for a month, but I still haven't seen a change in my body. Or, you know, I, I've been swimming for months on end now, but, you know, nothing has changed. Or I've been writing this book for six months and the outline is still a mess. And um, so tracking is helpful because it gives you a signal of progress while you're kind of waiting for those delayed rewards to show up. And um, so for that reason, I find it very helpful. Yeah, at the end of the day, uh, we can't really control the results that we get. We can only control the work that we put in. And uh, if all you're doing is looking for those results, it can be a while and it can be frustrating. The, you're talking about, I believe, a graph I've seen where what you believe should happen is linear results. You should mm. see results one after the other stacking up. But what really happens is it's more of an exponential curve where there's literally this dip in the beginning before you can see anything and you just have to hold on and, and try to get through that period. Yeah, I like to call it the plateau of latent potential, but it is basically like um, this is a hallmark of any compounding process, which is the greatest returns are delayed. And so in the beginning, you're putting in all this effort and you think I put in a little bit of effort, I should see a little bit of results, but it's mostly just a flat line. And um, I like using uh, a little concept or, or story to kind of illustrate this point. So imagine that you walk into a room, it's cold, you can see your breath. And it's like 25 degrees. You got an ice cube sitting on the table in front of you. And you start to heat the room up slowly. 26, 27, 28 degrees. Ice cube is still sitting there. 29, 30, 31. And then you go from 31 to 32 degrees. And it's this one degree shift, no different than like all the other shifts that came before it. But suddenly you hit this phase transition and the ice cube melts. And the process of building better habits and getting the results that you're hoping for is often like that in the sense that you've been working for months on end, but you don't see that result. And then you start to complain about it and complaining about running for a month and not seeing a change in your body or writing for six months and not having the book done yet is kind of like complaining about heating an ice cube from 25 to 31 degrees and it not melting. 
you know, it's, it's not that the work is wasted. It was just being stored. Um, and I, there's this great quote, the San Antonio Spurs, the NBA basketball team, they've, they've won five championships and they have this quote hanging in their locker room that says something to the effect of, when I feel like giving up, I think about the stone cutter who takes his hammer and bangs on the stone a hundred times without it showing a crack. And then on the 101st blow, it splits in two. And I know that it wasn't the 101st that did it. It was all the hundred that came before. And I think that is true for like so many areas of life with our habits. It is not the final sentence that writes the book. It's all the sentences that came before. It's not the last workout that reshapes your body. It's all the workouts that came before. It's not the latest blog post that gives you 100,000 subscribers. It's all the ones that came before. And the willingness to approach your habits and your results like that, I think, can lead to much more significant uh, outcomes in the long run. But you really need patience at first because it, it's a delayed process. I'm curious, James, if we could uh, talk a little bit about the business that you've built behind jamesclear.com. Obviously, you have the book. You're working on a second book already. I'm sure that's a big component of the business. But there was a period, I believe, before you had a book deal where uh, the blog was big enough that you were earning revenue in some other way. And uh, I'm guessing that you also have some other streams of revenue now as well. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got the business started and sort of what it looks like today? Yeah. So as I mentioned, for the first year, I just focused on growing the audience, but I was making money with freelance stuff. And I had a couple other, one or two other like web projects that I was um, working on that were making enough money to pay the bills, but nothing crazy. Um, and so early on, I just focused on growth. Then the next year or two, uh, I started doing what I called workshops. So like the habits workshop was the first one. Uh, there was one called the procrastination workshop, the time management workshop, et cetera. So they were all ideas, they were all workshops that were online. So it was basically like a paid webinar. You would buy a ticket and then it would happen during a given hour or two or three hour block. And you'd show up that day and I would teach and answer questions, et cetera. So that was kind of like a paid webinar version. I did that for a little while. Then we recorded those webinars and turned them into, I, I say we, now I have a team. Then it was just me. <laughs> I recorded those and uh, turned them into a course. Um, and so that course was then you could purchase that at any time. And then eventually the model that I had was I would do a live workshop. And then if you wanted to buy the recording afterward, you could buy that. So it was mostly online courses. Um, at that point it was probably like three years in or so. And I, I've been making a full-time income from the site for the last six or seven years now. So it's, it's not like I was doing anything else while I was doing this. Um, so at that point, the site had also grown to a degree where usually authors get a lot more speaking gigs than bloggers. So you don't, most people don't really build much of a speaking career around blogging, although it's happening more and more now. But I was getting some requests for paid speaking gigs, so I would do that a little bit too. And then the traffic on the site continued to grow, uh, and eventually we crossed like a million visitors a month. And so I, ha I don't really do affiliate stuff in the sense of like courses or things like that. But I will, if I like write about a book or something, I'll link to the affiliate one on Amazon. And um, so some of that revenue is, it's modest, but that adds up too over the, across the, the scale of the site. Um, so those were kind of the main revenue streams going into the book deal. And then three years in, in late 2015, uh, November 2015, I signed the book deal with Penguin Random House. Um, that you technically get an advance from the publisher, but most people don't know exactly how that works. So it, usually the advance is split into like three or four different payments and you get a third or a fourth of it up front. 
And then the remainder you get after you've handed in the finished book and on the day that the book comes out and so on. And so uh, I did get a little bit of money from that up front. So that was nice. And I had those other revenue streams kind of going. And then I spent the next two or three years, same revenue streams, writing the book, et cetera. And then it's really just been this last year that things have really changed significantly. So the book came out. uh, That is now a significant portion of revenue. Um, The keynote speaking picked up a lot because of the book. So I'm doing more speaking related to that. We still have the Amazon affiliate stuff uh, that mentions in blog posts and so on. And then the Habits Academy, which is now what the the webinars and courses around habits are called, um, that's still there and still does pretty well every month, but we're updating it right now to reflect the content in the book and kind of deciding where to go from there. Um, And then, so those four, and then the final, fifth and final revenue stream is called the Habit Journal. Uh, And so that's another physical product that is basically a Docker notebook, but then it also has habit tracking templates in the back. Uh, And so I have two physical products, the journal and the book and Atomic Habits, and then a digital product with the course and then speaking and the affiliate revenue through the site. So there's there's kind of five different streams uh, in the business now. And um, what is your publishing schedule in terms of blog posts these days? Yeah, so that had to change a lot when it. So I'm very consistent for the first three years. The fourth and fifth uh, year, I was much more focused on writing the book, and so we switched from doing two a week to I had articles come out on Mondays, uh, and then I worked on the book the rest of the time. Then the last like six months or so, when the book was getting ready to launch, the last six months of writing the book. I basically didn't do any new articles. I just focused on getting the book finished. Uh, And then over the last year now, since the book has been out, uh, I've gone back to publishing weekly, but I've done it in a different format. So now I have a recurring series on my newsletter that I call 321 Thursday. That comes out every Thursday and it's three short ideas from me, two quotes from other people, and then one question to think about throughout the week. And so that is a recurring series on Thursdays. And then when I write new long form articles, those go out on Mondays, but that's uh, more rare, maybe once a month or something like that. Um, once the book came out, well, leading up to the book, uh, I'm assuming that you had some sort of strategy, some sort of media blitz or something in addition to just relying on your own audience. What did that look like? How, were you relying on podcasts or, or something else? Yeah. So the big ones, I'll, I'll give you like the, I don't know, maybe the 80, 20 of it. So like the, the kind of three or four big pieces. So the most important piece, which is the most boring answer, but still the most important one is you got to write a great book because at some point, every book outpaces any book that really takes off outpaces the ability of the author to market it. Um, so I think we could argue or debate over what the exact threshold is, but I think with a great marketing strategy, and a lot of hard work and uh, just like grinding for say the first year. I think most authors, uh, if they've got a good strategy and they really just make it their sole purpose, could probably sell, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 books, maybe somewhere, somewhere in that range. But certainly I would say the upper end of over 100,000 copies. At some point, once you get above that, it's out of your hands. Um, you've done everything you can do. And the only reason it's going to take off and do more than that is that the book is so good that readers can't stop talking about it or feel like they need to tell somebody else about it or spread it on their own. So easily the most important marketing decision that we made in terms of scale and impact was writing about a topic people cared about, 
writing the most important or most useful uh, ideas we could, and then packaging that in a way that that people felt like I need to share this. Do you um, do you have any idea how many books come out a year that sell a million or more copies? Uh, that is a really good question. I don't know uh, that number. Um, the average book over the course of its life sells about five thousand copies or so. So it's it's very rare for a book to to sell that many. But that's a good question to know how many. I think in I did just read an article. I think it, it said five nonfiction books last year sold over a million. Uh, I don't know about this year though. Um, so, but it's some small number for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we yeah, could even maybe, say it was a dozen or two dozen, but it still would be a very small number. Mark Manson's book, has that sold probably over a million Oh, copies? Yeah. 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 Mark's book has been a massive bestseller and has sold, yeah, I think it's the bestselling nonfiction book the last two or three years. Um, yeah. So there, there are quite a few that have done, that have done well. The key though, and this, I think for, it depends on, depends on your strategy and depends on your goals. I mean, the most important question is, do you have something important to say? Do you feel like you have something worthy of writing a book on? And if you do, then write about whatever you feel like you have something to say on. Um, but if your real focus is to build a business around it or to um, make a long-term impact, the biggest impact possible, I think you not only want a book that like explodes out of the gate, but one that also can be resilient uh, and persistent. And so I like habits for that reason. I mean, it's a, it's a topic that will be just as important 20 years from now as it is today. Um, Anyway, let me get back and answer your question about the launch strategy. So number one is writing a great book. Uh, and then the kind of three main areas for marketing it and doing the launch. The first one was my own platform, which obviously is going to make the biggest difference. Um, we emailed my audience four times during launch week, which was you know double what we normally do if I was doing two articles a week. So, so that was a lot. But um, two of those emails were content. They were excerpts from the book. So people kind of understood what they were getting. Um, and then one of them paired well with the second strategy. So the first strategy is your own audience. Second strategy is a major media segment. Um, if you can get some kind of TV segment, I really, my experience is it really helped. Um, so I did a segment on CBS this morning, uh, during launch day. And so the book came out on Tuesday, Tuesday morning, I do that segment an hour later, it's on YouTube. And we took that YouTube clip and we emailed it out to my audience. And that was the best performing email of launch week. Um, so major media segment was the second piece. And then we did a podcast tour, which is the third one. Um, I don't think I'm really saying anything that most people who've like researched book launches or thought about it haven't heard before, you know, like have your own platform, do a podcast tour, et cetera. But we tried to do it at a really large scale. Um, so I had 75 podcast interviews recorded and that came out during launch week. Um, and then I did 200 interviews over the course of the first six months. Um, I would say probably a hundred, at least 150 of those were podcasts. And then the others were like radio. Um, so there was a really big effort on my end to spend, I mean, I spent a lot of hours doing interviews, talking about the book, sharing it, et cetera. And I think all of those coming out within that first, you know, six month window it kind of gave the book a feel like, oh, it's everywhere. Uh, and so people were hearing about it a lot. And I think that kind of helped the word of mouth snowball. Can you give us any highlights over the past year since this book came out? Uh, have you appeared anywhere that it's been really exciting or fun for you? Have you mm. 
accomplished anything or met anyone that you had looked up to forever? What have, what have the highlights been for you just personally, not necessarily from a success standpoint? Yeah. Um, there, yeah, there are quite a few that come to mind. So, uh, one, I have been shocked by the range of experiences that this book has pulled me into. So I just mentioned like on launch day, I did this very formal interview on CBS this morning. I'm wearing a suit jacket and a tie and talking to Gail King and like doing this very formal thing. And a week earlier, I was recording a podcast with a health and fitness blogger and podcaster. I had met him the night before at a dinner in LA and he was like, Oh, I have a podcast and told me about it. And like had a decent sized audience. And he was like, you want to do an interview? I was like, sure. And so he's like, come to my place tomorrow morning. So I came over in the morning and, uh, he convinced me to get into a sauna with him in my underwear. And we, we sat there for like 30 minutes and did that and did like a short workout. And then we did the interview. And so just the range of experiences between like being buttoned up on national TV and being in my underwear with a guy that I met like 10 hours earlier um, yep. has been very, very interesting. Um, the travel element of it, this has been, I love travel and have traveled a fair amount before this year. But this last year has been really crazy for my typical pace. Um, due to the book, I went to 13 countries in the first six months of the year. Um, Australia, Malaysia, Singapore, Japan, UK. Was this for speaking gigs or yes, appearances? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is for speaking. Um, the UK, Spain. Um, yeah, just all over the place. Um, so uh, that has been a wonderful excuse to see the world. Uh, and a really, really cool way to spend the year. I think uh, a little too much for my taste. Uh, I want to dial it back a little bit going forward, but also just a really amazing window uh, of time for me and a really cool, cool way to spend the year. And it's exciting to see the book spreading in other countries. Like I, I haven't done anything in Korea yet, but the book has been a, the Korean version is a bestseller. Um, it sold like 150,000 copies there and it's been all over the news and the list and stuff. So um yeah, it's interesting to think about making something and then it just kind of like, it's like doing its own thing now. Like I don't, I'm not even really in control of it. Um, so all of that has been, uh, has been very exciting. And then probably the third and final thing has been seeing it trickle into um, professional sports and particularly baseball. As someone who was a baseball player and grew up wanting to be a professional baseball player, it's cool to like just this last week, the New York Yankees, one of their coaches reached out. We're sending a box of books to them to share with the team. Um, the Boston Red Sox, Tampa Bay Rays, management for the Pittsburgh Pirates, like a bunch of different teams have read it. And um, that is cool to me, even if I, I don't know, you know what it means or if it makes a meaningful impact for them or how things have changed, but it, it's just neat. Um, I had a chance to go talk to the Cleveland Indians earlier this year, got to meet their management, go down the field during batting practice and see the players. And so there's just like a lot of cool little moments like that. It's been a, it's certainly the year has been filled with things that I could not have predicted. Um, and, uh, I just, yeah, I feel fortunate, uh, certainly more than I deserve. To, uh, kind of wrap things up, James, um, for someone who understands that habits are important. They understand that they can help them change their lives, become a different person, but is just really struggling with um, a lack of motivation, a lack of willpower, maybe confusion over what they should even be doing as far as habits. How do you 
help someone find clarity and make that commitment and get over that initial, you called, uh, you talked earlier about the Valley of Despair, I think after you have started habits, but before that, there's something that happens for a lot of people as well. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, let me give a big picture answer and like a more fine grain detail, uh, strategy. So the big picture answer I think is that, um, I, I just read this, this, uh, just read this story. It was in, I've been reading a bunch of commencement speeches recently, trying to like find little bits of wisdom and stuff. But anyway, I read this story in one of them where guy said, uh, yeah, I went to college with this guy who, um, he started out and he majored in linguistics and uh, art history and decided, uh, at the end of his college career, that that's not really what I want to go into. So I think maybe econ instead. So he went into a master's program in economics, goes to grad school. But after the first semester, he decides, ah, that's not quite right either. Drops out. Um, and uh, then he's looking for what to do next. So he applies to a, uh, um, a graduate program in math. So he goes to the mathematics department, gets accepted, goes in. Uh, he's a smart guy and he's like making his way through and then decides, eh, math isn't quite right either. Um, and so maybe what I should switch to is physics. So then he switches to physics. And um, at, this is the point when the speaker meets him. Uh, it was right when he, he meets him in the physics department. And he remembered at the first time meeting this guy, feeling a little bit sorry for him because he's like, man, he, he's a smart guy, but he really seems kind of lost. Like he's, he's tried five or six different things now and like he can't stick with anything for more than six months. And um, then they went their separate ways. They graduate the program. They kind of go out and do their careers. And about 20 years later, the guy opens up the newspaper and sees this guy, his classmate's name in it. And he turns out to have been the guy who came up with string theory, which is like a very important theory in physics. Uh, And he came up with it, you know, 25 years into his career or whatever. And he largely attributed the fact that he thought about things kind of differently because of all these other experiences that he had. And so he's just kind of trying new things and ended up coming up with this very important concept. And the punchline from the, the, um, the punchline from the speaker is that at first, I started to look at all that exploration as a negative, as, oh, this guy's kind of lost. But in retrospect, I look at it as, no, they were just like many points along the journey to finding what was right for him. And so my big picture suggestion for someone who feels lost or feels like they don't know what habits to start or they don't have the motivation to get going is basically to explore widely. And this is something I talk about in the book. There's this, this it's called the explore-exploit trade-off. And so early on in any process, you want to explore widely to try to find the best option for you or the best way to do something. And this is true for like big picture things like your career. Maybe over the first five or 10 years, you try a new job every two years. Or even if you stay at the same company, you try a new role every two years. Um, You're basically trying to explore a lot of different concepts and ideas. I did this myself a little bit where I tried different uh, websites and different things for the first couple of years and then eventually started jamesclair.com and started writing about habits. And then even when I started that, I explored kind of a wide range of topics and eventually settled on habits. But I was writing about strength training and health and fitness. I have an early post about like medicine and, you know, so like I was exploring a couple different things. But then as time goes on, it makes more sense to explore less and exploit a little bit more to take advantage of the best option that you found so far. And that's true, not just for big picture things like your career or how to live your life, but also for more finer grain things. Like if you have six weeks to do a project, maybe the first two weeks should be spent exploring the best possible way to attack the problem. And then as the deadline gets closer and you need to get results, you should exploit the best option you found so far. 
So that's kind of the big picture ideas. Let's try to explore widely. The, the smaller, finer grained idea is a concept that I call the two minute rule. So basically, if you feel like you're lacking motivation, you're lacking willpower, then scale your habits down to a degree that they only take two minutes or less to do. And you can do this with pretty much any habit. So read 40 books a year becomes read one page or write 100 blog posts a year becomes write one sentence. Um, do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes I say that and people like resist it a little bit because they know they're like, okay, the real goal isn't just to take my yoga mat out. Like I know I actually want to do the workout. So why would I fall for this, you know, like trick or whatever. But I would suggest for the first week or so, force yourself to only do it for the first two minutes. I have this story that I tell in the book, this reader named Mitch, he, he ended up losing over a hundred pounds. And for the first six weeks, he went to the gym and he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in the car, drive to the gym, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, but what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym, even if it was just for five minutes. And I think that is a much deeper truth about habits that is often overlooked, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? Like it has to become the normal, the standard in your life before you can optimize or scale it up into something more amazing or impressive. And um, if you're feeling like you don't have the motivation to start, the motivation to do the whole thing, make it as small as possible so that you don't even really need motivation to do it. You know, there, there's that phrase from Leo Babalto where he says, make it so easy, you can't say no. And um, that idea, I think that's a more tactical way to get started today. And then you can pair that with the larger philosophical approach of, let me explore widely over the next few years and just keep searching. And eventually I'll come across something that works better for me. James, uh, congrats on all the success. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Corbett. Great to chat. Uh, I also want to give a copy of Atomic Habits to somebody that's listening to this. All you have to do is mention me and James on Twitter. I'm at Corbett Barr, C-O-R-B-E-T-T-B-A-R-R. And James is at James Clear. And just uh, tell us one habit that you want to start or change in the new year. And I'll send a copy of Atomic Habits to one lucky winner. Uh, you can find more from James over at jamesclear.com. I also highly, highly recommend the book Atomic Habits. You can download the first chapter for free over at jamesclear.com. As always, thanks for being here. You can find the full show notes and links for this episode over at fizzleshow.co. This is episode number 359. I'm Corbett Barr, and until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show. <laughs>